This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Underrated Movie Podcast. This is a podcast where we discuss shows that are underrated, underappreciated, and ones that have flown under the radar and passed most people by. I am your host, Derek McDuff, and today I am joined by a special guest, Pat Mayo, uh, the host of the Pat Mayo Show, and or the, excuse me, the Pat Mayo Experience, and uh, he runs the Pat Mayo Media Network. Pat, how is it going? Thanks for being on, man. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm so glad to be here that I can talk about this movie with anyone. Because there are so few people in the world that you can actually talk about this movie with. However, it might not fall into the underrated category. Underappreciated, maybe, but it's probably quite properly rated. <laughs> well, yeah, that's why I like to cast a wide net. You know, any any movie out there that maybe deserves a little more love, deserves to shine a light on, you know, for whatever reason we like to talk about here at Underrated. And so, yeah, the movie that we're alluding to, of course, if you've seen the title, uh, is Southland Tales, a 2007 film written and directed by Richard Kelly with a vast ensemble cast uh, that were apparently cast against type on purpose because Richard Kelly thought that they all had secret hidden talents, which is interesting. Um, But yeah, this is very much a cult classic film that uh, arrived at the Cannes Film Festival in 2006 and had a very mixed reaction from critics, a very mixed reaction from audiences, did very poorly at the box office, but has has become, you know, kind of a cult hit. There, This is maybe one of the most divisive films I've, I've ever seen. I, there's a lot of chat about this one, much like Johnny, Donnie Darko, his previous effort on the internet about people who hate it but people who love it so yeah i as soon as you suggested it to me i was i was intrigued in doing this one but pat before we get into all that i mean i'm sure you're a man who needs no introduction but why don't you tell the people about yourself and your your shows yeah i'm guessing that most people in the film review world (laughs) probably do not know who i am i have a show, a daily talk show, mostly sports, mainly sports betting about football and golf. But we do entertainment, we do politics, we do pop culture, we do all that fun stuff too, sandwiched in between. But it's a daily show, the Pat Mayo Experience for the audio versions, Mayo Media Network on YouTube, uh, and myriad other places as well. But those are the main places you can find my show and, you know, check me out on X at the PME. Very easy to get in touch with me, but... 
it's funny because you said it had mixed reactions. There was not really a lot of mixed reactions on this movie. There was just poor reactions to this movie. Yeah, that that's fair. Um, but you know what? I think over the years, it's kind of earned its. Yeah, like I read, you know, just doing a little research for this, read the initial feedback that the the critics had in that initial festival run, and people were angry at this there was there was a few critics that gave it positive reviews you know i think it has you know like a a 40 percent 41 percent on raw tomatoes which is not good but uh, i think it kind of shows that this movie was kind of split mostly down the middle of people liked it or didn't um but you know what was your initial reaction to this movie I loved it. I, I was really getting into David Lynch at the time, and it reminded me of a just, you can almost call it a bizarro version of a bunch of different filmmakers, like in another world, this is a bad Philip K. Dick novel. <laughs> it's a bad David Lynch movie. But this movie, even though it's split down the middle critically, let's say, at 41%, and it's generous to call it down the middle, I don't think that anyone actually thinks this is a good movie. But it's a movie that you need to vibe with. If you can vibe with this movie and just kind of turn your brain off and just kind of sit there. Like I watched it for the first time in theaters stoned out of my mind. <laughs> and yeah, that's probably the best way to watch it when you're not really critically thinking too much about it because there's way too much backstory. It's like you know, 20 pounds of potatoes stuffed into an eight pound bag. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. This was, I was watching it and I was like, there is so much here. And he does, he literally does the same thing that Star Wars does, where he's like, here's four through six. Like it's, and you're like, oh, okay. I guess he's just like skipping over one through three, the same way that the original Star Wars trilogy was, you know, four, six, four, five, and six. And then, you know, we went back and I guess there was like a graphic novel that was released that was supposed to be one through three. But there's just so much in this movie there's like a, at a certain point, I was like, I'm gonna stop trying following the plot and future people traveling back and porn stars that are actually like secret underground people and who's working for who and who, like Will Sasso is actually secretly this guy and then and then you know it's 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 just a lot and there's a lot of you know like I said there's a huge ensemble cast but then somebody like Janine Garofalo will show up and you're like oh she's in this this is great. Uh, so I, I, it's, it is a movie though that, like you said, you have to kind of just give yourself over to the vibes, let, you know, the waves, the perpetual motion of it all just kind of flow over you and just kind of have this very bizarre experience. And I'm a person who likes to go on Letterboxd a lot. I was really curious to see like, what does Letterboxd think of this? And you can always kind of see the bell curve on Letterboxd. Usually if a movie is like rated at three, you'll have like a pretty even distribution there. It'll be in the middle, mostly threes. And then it'll go like, you know, taper off towards the fives and the, the one stars. But this one, if you, it's the weirdest bell curve distribution I've ever seen on Letterboxd where there's like a ton of fives, there's a ton of half stars. And there's, it's just like jagged teeth looking at the scores for this thing. And it has a perfect 3.0. And then I like looked at some of my friends' reviews and people I follow and stuff. And a couple of film critics I like a lot have given this like four stars. And I was just like, that's bizarre. And then I, some other ones I've liked a lot gave it one star. I was like, that checks out for this movie because, yeah, it's it's something where you're like, what even is this? It's it's a movie that I'm like, do I need to watch this again? And maybe honestly, you had the right idea. Being in an inebriated state, I could see this as a movie. Where it's like, yeah, maybe, maybe, you know, you, you have a couple of drinks, you know, you smoke a little something and just kind of be like, whatever, just let it, let it hit you. 
Uh, I watched it the other night in mm. preparation for this. My wife walked in about 45 minutes into it, and she just had question after <laughs> question about what's going on. And I had to tell her, look, I don't really know what's going on. You just kind of have to go with it. She's like, is that Sarah Michelle Geller? It's like, yeah, it is. It's like, is she a porn star? It's like, yeah. She is. She's also working in conjunction with an underground Marxist movement at the same time. Just go with it. It, it, it doesn't really make that much sense. But here we are. I, the weird thing about this movie is that 15 years later, and I have read those graphic novels, by the way. It was like 2008. I, I found it like a, I think it was on like a LimeWire. I was able to download a PDF of it. Okay. It does help it make a little bit more sense. Like you can see this would have been a really good like 12 episode Netflix show. I think. I don't think it would be good necessarily, but I think it would have made a lot, it would have been much more cogent, put it that way. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting because it does have that feel of just it very overstuffed. Like there's just way too much. Like you just get into it without. And it's interesting because they're like, there should be a fish out of water character because like the, the main character, even though it's more of an ensemble, is, does have amnesia. So it's like, okay, cool. He could, we could just explain the world to him. But it's like, no, we, we skipped that scene. And it's just like, all right. But yeah, it's just so bizarre, so weird. And it's one of these movies that is it's just trying something. And I, I respect it so deeply for that. That any like a movie that it's not playing it safe at all. It's not saying, here's the conventions that you know. Here's the easy way to do something. Like this, Richard Kelly, he really had a vision. He's like, I'm going to make this dark dystopian black comedy about like it's just gonna start with nukes going off and it's just gonna be about like you know how america's just going down this road and, and like, there's some things you watch you're like huh that's kind of like like they like they talk about you know the and it's a lot of juvenile humor like that is kind of like going up against this like weird heady stuff and it'll be like here's prop 69 you're like did that almost kind of predict like them trying to get rid of net neutrality like all these like little things it's just like about like the creeping like this you know the the overreach of like government and stuff like that you're like this is very interesting uh and yeah it's 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 not like genius or anything but you're like there's some there's some interesting ideas in here and i love that they're trying these things you know it's too many interesting ideas <laughs> For one movie to handle is the problem because it has no resolution really on any of it and it's funny because the reason that i got into this movie in the first place was i didn't like donnie darko at all i thought it was mm. absolutely terrible so i'm one of those it's funny because all of his films kind of have that although far more people enjoy donnie darko to really hating it i actively hated donnie darko and then this movie comes up i see it's from richard kelly it's like well i don't know if i really want to watch this but I came of age, hit my adolescence at the time when the Attitude Era era in the WWF was just getting big. So I was a big The Rock fan. Around that same time, American Pie comes out. Who doesn't love Stifler? It's like, wow, you got The Rock and Stifler. It's the same reason I saw the movie The Rundown. They have these two guys <laughs> in it. This sounds great. I'm going to go check this out. And I was just completely blown away <laughs> by everything that happened in this movie. But you talk about the prescience of some of this stuff. And even to watch it almost 20 years later, like the, the Wallace Shawn character is basically Elon Musk. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking he's just like, he's this just egomaniacal guy from, you know, like in this case, Germany instead of South Africa. But yeah, he's just like, I'm going to save the world. And I, and it's going to be this technology that is just like so advanced. And, it, you know, and it's like, yeah, okay, whatever. Like, and he's just trying to basically own the world, own everything. He's, 
and he's got this very devoted, almost cult-like group of fans and everything. And it's like, oh yeah, he he pitches himself as this savior of the world, but it's actually like the things he's doing are probably not that great for the world. And I think, yeah, it's he's he's a very very that that's a that's an interesting parallel that i think i was kind even, of thinking about yeah even something as much as throughout the course of the movie obviously it's taking mm-hmm. place in what is the somewhat in the future but the 2008 presidential election it would be the end of the bush era into whatever this is going to be and there's a lot of the net neutrality stuff that would come out of the patriot act uh, and that's like a big plot it's not even really a plot point just things that are happening in the movie it, calling anything a plot point is a bit generous for this movie but he is cozying up to the republican and right wing side of everything but he's secretly funding the neo-marxists at the same time like he's playing he's actively playing both sides he has developed a technology where you don't need you don't need to use gas anymore. You can try to save the earth through these you know, Wi-Fi cars of this power that he has invented. So it just, it kind of stuck out to me watching it this time around. It's like, huh, they were, because this movie and Idiocracy came out at the same time and everyone points to Idiocracy as like, yeah, this is basically the future and we're there at this point. This movie is leaning somewhat on that as well. Like, hey, this, like, even how they consume media and Sarah Mish, like there was no one talking about being a brand, a porn star being a brand in 2007 outside of this movie. Now, every porn star is a brand. They have energy <laughs> drinks. They have Instagram followings. Like that is a major part of this movie. Yeah. And just like the kind of influencer culture in general, like porn stars, but like everybody else, how, like how all when uh, Amy Poehler and her husband are like there, you know, they're these like, these Marxist anarchists, like, but they're also, you know, they're like, oh, well, we've got to go in disguise because we're known people. And, you know, they're like, one of the people is like a stand-up comedian. It's like, yeah, everybody is a brand. Everybody is an influencer. They're all these quote-unquote content creators. Uh, they're out there in the world. They're like, we're going to do all these things. We're going to stage all this stuff. And just, yeah, it, it really is. And then one more thing that, too, that I thought was the Elon Musk thing. It's like, yeah, his his great groundbreaking vehicle, it blows up just like Elon's first three rockets or whatever. You know, <laughs> like, So I thought, yeah, there's it does feel maybe he had some kind of like maybe, you know, Richard Kelly was able to time travel like the rocket. It wouldn't make any sense just like this movie. And it's like, what's going on with the, the Jesus stuff? Like he's Sean William Scott is a savior. Like what? Like it's one of those things. They just throw so much stuff at the wall that I think some of it's going to hit. And if you can kind of just give yourself over to this experience, like you said, I don't know that it's a good movie, but like, it's one of those things just like, what, what is even, ha- it's an interesting experience. And I'm really glad that I got to do it and when watch it and experience this. And I'm really glad that, you know, he was given an opportunity to make this movie. You see so many run of the mill movies, obviously not with this sort of, really deep bench of comedic actors in this movie. And someone once told me that if you watch this movie as a satire, it becomes a lot more palatable for people. So I've kind of adjusted my mind a little bit to thinking that. I think that's a lot of retroactive, like retconning this movie that Richard Kelly wrote it as a satire. I don't necessarily it's know. It's like the room. He thought, it's like, I, he's like, it was a comedy. <laughs> Yeah, it was a comedy the whole time. Don't worry about that. <laughs> I, I don't know if that was necessarily the case. Maybe it was. And that's how, if you choose to view it through that lens, it becomes a whole lot better. But I, I just, it's, 
like with the the con thing like you were talking about it had unfinished vfx at con uh and you can go back and watch the con cut now i think they ended up putting like an extra two million dollars into the movie to have the vfx and some of the visual effects are really good some of them are truly horrendous the, the one thing that undermines this movie more than anything is that there are some really cringe roles in it in specific parts you mentioned the 69 stuff maybe like i can't really even transport myself back into that time to be like oh is this like really hilarious because it's not when you watch <laughs> the movie and they say it so many times that it's like all right man we get it like if it was just once that would be fine and that whole character at the end the guy that drives sean william scott to go meet himself is unbearably bad another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. <laughs> yeah, and it because it, it honestly does feel like this was a really good script written by like a 14 year old where he's like, I've got all these ideas, man. And it's going to be like the government's going to get you. And I'm, it's, it's going to be funny, dude. I'm going to put some stuff about like 69 and baby farts in there. And it's, and it's like, yeah, it feels pretty juvenile, honestly, but you got to kind of respect that. And I always do respect a movie that is doing something different. The first movie I ever, we ever covered on underrated was Speed Racer, which came out around the same time, 2008. And that's a movie that I think is, like, unabashedly a just masterpiece that, like, critics missed on and, like, audiences missed on. This is not in that same category, but I think that they're at least reaching for something similar, which is, like, we're trying to do something big and bold and different. And I don't know that a movie like this gets made today because the movies where it's like, yeah, you can have an up-and-coming director... And just have if he has like a great cast and just let him just do whatever. Those days are kind of gone. Now it's like, yeah, we'll just like this guy would just be tapped to, you know, make, I don't know, the like next Planet of the Apes movie or the next Spider-Man movie or something. Yeah. Like if you had a big hit, yeah, Richard Kelly wouldn't be directing a $17 million Southland Tales. He'd be directing a $200 million Star Wars offshoot, like Rogue One sequel or something like that. Yeah, honestly, exactly. Have you ever seen Cloud Atlas? You know, interesting enough, that's one we just covered. I I love that movie. So I've never seen it, but I read some of the reviews for it, and they sound suspiciously like the reviews for this movie. Now, albeit it's probably a better movie, it looks better, better directed, better acting, but just the confusion that people seem to have for that movie seems very similar to this one. And that's interesting, yeah, because... I think there are a lot of parallels, you know, and I brought up Speed Racer and and then, you know, Cloud Atlas is obviously also done by the Wachowskis because I think they're people that have these grand ideas. And I think that Cloud Atlas works is like this where it throws a lot of stuff at the fan and just or the wall and just sees whatever sticks, you know, and I think that Cloud Atlas works a little bit better because there is a more kind of cohesive singular idea that holds everything together, which is about how we're all connected and just about how these divisions that humanity has are all just kind of artificially imposed upon us. And so all those different disparate ideas kind of stick together. Uh, and I know I know that movie is another one where people 
don't like like people really hate it and i talked about that on the episode how like time named it like their worst movie of the year which is ridiculous but i could see the parallels between that where they are trying all these things do you think there's a singular idea in this like there is in cloud atlas that kind of hangs everything together no because the, the, the part that we haven't mentioned at all either like justin timberlake's in this movie he is mm. the narrator and it's based on the book of revelations yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> so you have that part. Of, I like what you're saying, though. Like, the, you don't see, like, when you say that something like Cloud Atlas in Time Magazine names it the worst movie of the year, you don't get to be named the worst movie of the year unless you're really trying something. I kind of equate it to, listen, there's three outcomes in baseball at this point. Either people walk, they hit a home run, or they strike out. This movie is just, there's no walking. He Richard Kelly is swinging at every pitch that's coming in, and he's trying to hit a home run. And he misses a lot of the time. But there are a few here that clear the fence. Like, he's not trying to take a walk and draw the count and wear out the pitcher and sack bunt the guy over to second base and try to sacrifice fly him in with something. There's, there's no small ball when it comes to this movie. It's just taking home run cuts the entire time. And if you're doing that, the people that are actively going to dislike your movie are just going to be so so wide versus a very by the book crappy movie like i was i was trying to think of like other movies that came around in this time that i probably saw in theaters like the remake of last house on the left which is just really <laughs> bad but like it's it's generically bad like you, no one even thinks about that movie because it's so bad and forgettable there's nothing forgettable about southland tales which i think is a credit to it yeah honestly and it's it's interesting that you use the baseball metaphor because that's that's something that I use a lot with these movies, too. I kind of, like, invented a category that I call them where I call them big swings for the exact same reason, where it's like, yeah, they are going to take this huge swing on this movie where they're either going to, like, strike out or hit a home run. And I did, like, a whole... Back in the day, I did, like, a whole mini series about these movies that I thought fit into this category. And this kind of hits all those checks except for one. I think I had, like I said, they had to be, like, over $100 million because these big things. But, like, you know, it's it's got, like, all this world building, just really, like like interesting like characters and like all this stuff there it is trying all these things and so yeah i think that this is kind of a although it's a smaller budget it's a big budget for this kind of film so it is definitely taking that big swing and yeah movies like that are always gonna be judged a little more harshly when they don't land uh, it's a lot you know if it's, um, that's like a safe bet doesn't like nobody cares that pompeii that movie didn't you know, light the world on fire, no pun intended. Uh, and But when this is just, because it's just like, whatever, it's just like a dumb action movie, who cares? But when this is like so big on bombastic and doesn't work, people like, like I remember years back, there was this YouTube channel that I followed and the guy did like a whole video essay about how he thought this was his least favorite movie of all time. And that was one of the points he was. He's like, yeah, this was very ambitious and it didn't work. And for me, I will always like a movie like that much more than the emoji movie, something that is just a cheap cash grab that isn't saying anything, it isn't trying anything, that's just going to try to be lowest common denominator, entertaining schlock and not really do do anything or kind of be about anything bigger than itself. And this movie was trying to be about something bigger. A lot of things, too many things, as you said, but it's trying. Like In another world, if this is done right, it could have the critical praise. I can't believe I'm saying this. But think about Mulholland Drive, how that is mm. a critically lauded movie. I love Mulholland Drive. It 
I probably watched it 40 times. I still don't quite know what's going on in the movie. But again, it's just a vibes movie. But David Lynch gets so much credit for actively being a visual artist and really creating vibes in a movie. And that's a movie that people can vibe with. And it's a mystery, although no one really knows even what the mystery is or how it's resolved. And in this one, there's just too much going on where in Mulholland Drive, sometimes it feels like there's too little going on. And that's sort of where I think the clash comes in, why people don't like this movie, is that if you're going to have an ambitious movie, Maybe it's not best to try to say anything in it if you're going to rely on stylization and sort of like dreamlike whimsy. Maybe it's because it takes place in the not-too-distant future that you can have your one thing that you want to say. And like you mentioned, that we've talked about that, not the 17 things that you want to say. Really kind of hammer down on the one thing. Yeah, and I, I want to touch back on a point you made earlier, which we said like this probably you know would not be a movie that gets made today, but it might be like a miniseries, you know, or like a TV show that gets made today. And Richard Kelly's even talked about going back to this universe and doing a TV show because I think that would work. Honestly, I think may at least work better than the movie. I be, and I I'm thinking of um, Far Away Downs, which if anybody who doesn't know is Baz Luhrmann went back and recut Australia into like a six part miniseries. And I think that's something that really benefited from this format. And this could benefit from the format as well, where I think Australia is similarly kind of overstuffed. This is a three hour movie. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of plots, but when you are able to do that into a more long form stretched out into episodes, which this is already broken up into episodes. So it would make sense. Like, if he had so you know he obviously has a lot of footage a lot of it's undone i don't know that he would be able to get the budget to put in the fx and stuff like that but i could see it really working as like yeah this is like a six part mini series it's a seven part mini series whatever put it out on one of those prestige networks or hulu or something like that or fx or whatever uh, i could see this being a lot more palatable I know that The Irishman was nominated for Best Picture and people really seem to like it, but I always thought The Irishman should have been like a five-part miniseries rather than a movie because I actively started to hate it halfway through because it was too long. <laughs> I, I, I agree. There, I there agree. are, like, if you want to make a five-hour movie or a four-hour movie, that's fine. Just break it up into, like, 45-minute segments and then I can watch it my own pace and not feel like I have to be glued to it the entire time. That's also a part of this movie that people, I think, really hated is that it's so long. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of, there's you're just like, wow, this thing, I, I was watching it and I kept being like, okay, how much, I was like, oh my gosh, I still got an hour left and it doesn't have a traditional narrative arc so you're not like, okay, cool, we're getting to the end. It's just like, all right, now this thing is happening. Now this thing is happening. It just keeps throwing out more and more ideas and more and more things. You're like, all right, cool. These characters are here now. Oh, there's, and I, there was a point where like, oh, there's Will Sasso. I haven't seen him since like the beginning of the movie. He's back now. But with all that stuff that they've been throwing out, all these ideas and stuff, did you have any like moments or parts that you thought were really great and really interested you? Yeah, I, I think that the reason that this movie still lingers in our minds is because there are three or four parts of this movie, and everyone has something different, that do stick with you for a while. Like, the everyone always points to the when Justin Timberlake takes the fluid karma, and then he's walking around lip-syncing to the killer song. Like, that's... I don't know why it's in the movie, <laughs> but... It's very memorable. I love, and I, this was the part that I was waiting for with my wife. And I, in my memory, I think it may have been better than I thought it was, but I really enjoy it. The, the tracking shot 
of The Rock and Mandy Moore. Yes, Mandy Moore's in this movie. <laughs> when they get onto the blimp. And it basically has every character in it. And it's probably like four and a half minutes long. It is beautifully photographed. The choreography is excellent. The music is awesome. It's just an awesome scene. You could probably just YouTube that scene. Maybe that's all you really need to see of the movie. But I thought that was just... I was shocked that that scene out of nowhere and that stylization was in this movie after having watched it for two and a half hours at that point. Yeah, I because that scene I'm watching, I was like, did Scorsese direct this scene? Like, what is what is happening here? Because yeah, it is. I remember like having that because I was kind of like a little bit honestly tuning out at that moment, and then that really drew me because drew me back in where it's like you're just going through and seeing all these characters and you follow down a bay for a while and then they, this happens over here and then there's the flag and there's the people on the stage and singing and you're just like going through the whole part and you're like that is an immaculately shot really great wonder and yeah there are moments like that where you'll start to drift or whatever and then you'll pull you back and you you mentioned the the justin timberlake lip syncing all these things that i've done and that was the moment that really stuck out for me uh me because i people Longtime listeners of the show will probably know that the Killers are my favorite band, and I love it whenever they unexpectedly show up in a movie. You know, I did Spider-Man three a couple weeks ago, and they had a song in the credits, and I was like, "Oh, cool!" And it's usually Mr. Brightside or something. Uh, so I was really excited to hear all these things that I've done. I was like watching, and I was like, "I have no idea what is happening. Like, why this is like a thing." You know, it, like you said, it comes out of nowhere. But I was like cool like the killers this is awesome and it just goes through the whole song and you're like cool this this is great he's lip syncing the whole thing i'm back on board i can't possibly hate a movie that has all these things that i've done in it it just doesn't work in my dna so i was i was back on board for that the other part that sticks out to me that i think that gets lost in all of this because everything is it's funny because some of the actors are playing it so subtle but it's very bombastic so it seems over the top Sean William Scott is awesome in this movie. Yes. Yeah, I, I would completely agree. <laughs> I, I don't get why he didn't have... I know he had a good career, and, like, Role Models is one of my favorite movies ever. But I, I just don't get how he didn't end up as, like, a, a lead on a prestige drama cop show or something like that. And you just don't expect it from him, but, he, like, he has a physical presence in this movie. He makes two characters that seem somewhat... He's not as good as like Nicolas Cage in adaptation is playing two separate characters, but they are distinct characters, both on different timelines, like his confusion in the movie. He's just fantastic. And he is by far the best part. And The Rock, I mean, I love The Rock, but I don't want to say he's miscast because I think that The Rock today would be better in this movie, I think, mm. than The Rock then. Yeah, I think The Rock is interesting because... The Rock is, he's kind of just, he only plays The Rock now. He's always the same guy. Even in the Fast and Furious movies, when he was kind of a different character, he's just kind of become The Rock. And I do appreciate, even though I don't, you know, think he's necessarily the best in some of these early movies, when he was still The Rock before he was Dwayne Johnson, you know, uh, at least credited, when he was taking risks and he was trying to do different things and was trying to play parts in a different way. And he might not have been great in this, but I was like, cool, I'm getting to see him try something different, a different performance, a different angle than he usually takes. And I think that's true of pretty much the entire cast. You're like, these guys who wouldn't necessarily get to play these parts normally, you're getting to see them in these roles, a lot of comedic actors in more serious roles, you know? So I, yeah, I really is, dug that, yeah. Is Richard Kelly best friends with 
every early 90s SNL cast member's agent? Is that what happened? I guess so. And also Kevin Smith, who I was just like, it took me a while. to. I was like, who the fuck is that? And I was like, oh my God, because he's got the beard and everything. But he's got such a distinct way of speaking. I was like, I recognize that voice. And it's like Kevin Smith. I was like, oh yeah. And I, it's it's funny because yeah, he he has an incredible cast in this. And it's funny because you watch the credits for this movie and just like the the you know the cast goes on forever it just keeps going and going and going and i like look down at my phone and i look back up and i'm like i'm like okay gotta log this on letterbox i look back up and like the cast list is still going for like the second minute i'm just like wow okay so he he really just got everybody in this movie yeah i thought sherry o'terry was actually really good in this movie Mm. Yeah, and yeah. you mentioned Amy Poehler and Wood Harris as the the slam poet couple, Dream and whoever it is. I think that's the funniest part of the movie is the the double homicide with the squibs. Just cracked me up. That that was really good when like the, he gets shot for real and then the second squib that I thought was hilarious. So uh, I don't know. Do you do you think like this is actually supposed to be intended as a comedy, or do you think that like that this is just a retroactive thing? Because I kind of got vibes. I was like, this feels like it's maybe a farce. I don't know. I, I can see the farcical elements of it. Mm. And, well, I do think that there are satirical elements in this movie, and there are certain scenes that are clearly written for comedy. It also wants to be taken seriously at the same time. Like, it's a end-of-the-world movie. So, like, what's the other end-of-the-world satirical movie, really, that you can think of? Strange Love, right? Yeah, yeah. And it, it does seem like it's trying to pull from a lot of those like movies these kind of classic just big big over the top farces the problem is that when you like in in strange love whether you have commander kong in the plane he is an over the top character he's playing everything straight but like he is outrageous and everyone kind of sees that he's outrageous or general turgenson in the war room that he's over the top and you know he's chewing gum the entire time he's standing up and yelling at the the russian ambassador but everyone else is taking it very seriously you have a full commitment from almost the entire cast that no one's really playing. The Rock is playing it the biggest, but I don't think that he was trying to play it big. It seems like he's trying to play it subtle. It's just The Rock can't do anything subtly just because he's a giant man. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. And, you know, you mentioned Philip K. Dick, too, earlier, and it did give me vibes of definitely a lot of the adaptations that have come out of Philip K. Dick. Um, I think it the one it really reminded me of the most, and you you know speaking of like a big guy at the center of it, it, re- it gave me Total Recall vibes a lot, where it's just like there's this guy and he's he's doesn't remember everything and he's just caught up in this huge conspiracy and everybody's like double crossing everybody and people who he thinks are on his side are actually on the other side and he's actually just a pawn in this game and he doesn't know who he really is, so it really. And I I love Total Recall. It's it's definitely one of like my favorite sci-fi movies and this. Nowhere, nowhere comes close to that. But I think that's another very smart movie that is very subtly and interestingly commenting on. It seems like a big, dumb, bombastic action movie with some comedy in it. But it is all, it is really commenting on you know the world we live in and society in a smart way. And this is maybe not doing it as intelligently, but it's it's going for those same vibes, and I do appreciate that. I think you're onto something here. It's like a dumbed down version of a Philip K. Dick story or something like Total Recall. It's a lesser directed version of a vibes movie like a David Lynch movie. It's just 
it has all these ideas taken as a satirical thing. Can he do it as good as Kubrick? Obviously not. He can't do it as good as Kubrick. He's like <laughs> the middleman in all of this. It's like when Jeremy Lin got hot for like three weeks that one time. <laughs> and oh my God, Jeremy Lin. And then he just turned Insanity. back into Jeremy Lin. Richard Kelly was like feeling himself here, having a heat check, and he just didn't have the talent to really pull it off. But I'm here for it anyway. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's like, you know, give these guys a shot. And if they don't work out, then, you know, whatever. We get some weird relic of the early 2000 or the late 2000s, you know, and why not? You know, why not like let this thing exist? I'm glad it's out there in the world. Yeah, so I, so I like, I've been kind of going through it. Someone wrote this and I, I actually mm-hmm. don't know who it was, but I copied it down. And because there's different parts, there's like the religious aspect of this, but there's also the sci-fi aspect of it. And it takes place in the future. But there's a part where, like, if people don't know, like, the general plot synopsis, if I can try to do this, is that <laughs> Good the, luck. Rock wakes up with amne- the Rock wakes up with amnesia in porn star Sarah Michelle Geller's house, and they've written a screenplay together called The Power, which predicts the end of the world, which is actually what's happening within the reality of this movie. So everything in this script that they've written is actually what's going on to them in real life culminating with the end of the world, unless you think that Sean William Scott actually saves them all in the end, where the rock sacrifices himself for the people and the godlike figure of Sean William Scott saves and brings salvation to the people. I think that's what happens in the end. I could be wrong about that. But someone, a part of it is that the world is slowing down because of this weird perpetual motion machine in the ocean. They're sucking fluid karma out of the core and it's creating temporal rifts everywhere I can see why people don't like this. But uh, one of the things that it's doing, it's making the world really hot. Uh, So there's a climate change aspect of this as well. But it's also making people kind of crazy at the same time. It's making them more aggressive. That's why you see all of the riots downtown in Los Angeles. So to say all of that, this is what was written. I thought it was really the best way I've heard the movie explain. Uh, This movie is all about a world gone mad and how a bunch of disparate actors, all thinking that they should be in control or that they can save the world, all collide and each inadvertently contribute to the giant mess at the end. And the every man in the middle who didn't understand what was happening and was just trying to do the right thing is left with nothing but to look himself in the mirror and try to tell himself that it's not his fault and he saves it in the end. Okay, yeah. I mean, that's that's a good way of putting it. It's much it's a, a much better summary than I think you know most most people would be able to give of this movie. Because so I even I even went on Wikipedia afterwards. I was like, I think I got that, but like, let me like get like a Cliff Notes version of it to just set my mind right. And I was like, nope, that didn't help at all. That covered maybe like a fourth of what was actually going on in the movie because there's just so much. And it's like, how do you talk about this? It's a lot of disconnected points. But I think you did a pretty good job of like summarizing it. And yeah, at the end, I was also kind of like, so I guess Son William Scott did save the world. The whole thing about it can't be saved is is uh, was wrong. But I they do kind of leave that open to interpretation. The one other question for you that I had was because I was try- I, the way I read it was that he was actually had been best friends with Pilot with the Justin Timberlake character, and he had friendly the reason that Justin Timberlake had to get the cosmetic surgery, why he had all those scars and everything, was because of some friendly fire done by Sean William Scott. Is that the right read? Are you getting the same vibes, or am I just off base here? 
Yeah, no, so the graphic novels go into that a little bit okay. more, and they kind of cover that part of it. So yeah, they're best friends. They're in Iraq, because every the draft is, I mean, that's another part of this. The draft right. is back in place. There are wars in Iraq, Iran, Syria, and Jordan that Americans are getting drafted into, but they can win all these wars because of this new technology where you don't need gas to refuel anything. So, and, and just like the hustler advertisements on the side of tanks because everything is being <laughs> broadcasted. Like, that's not too far away in the future either. But when they were both in Iraq, there was friendly fire. And yeah, there was like an explosion that Sean William Scott shot off and it hit Justin Timberlake in the face. Justin Timberlake forgives him, but Sean William Scott does not forgive himself about it. It took him having amnesia about the entire thing to reckon with it. Like, there's also a case that this movie is about Sean William Scott and PTSD at the same time too. Like, it's just a lot of threads that don't, necessarily all wrap itself around in the end yeah it's it's definitely one of those movies where the parts are more than the sum of the whole or whatever and i i do i did really like though that last scene with sean william scott in and this is gonna sound insane to i was gonna say anybody who hasn't seen the movie but also anyone who has where it's like the guy on the rocket launcher on the floating ice cream truck and sean william scott is holding his duplicates hand and they're causing things to float above the sky and that I just loved that moment where he's like looking at himself, being like threatening to kill himself, let and he's like let go of me, and he has to literally forgive himself. And that's one thing that is really cool about these big weird concept movies is you can take something that is bizarre like that, like the idea of forgiving yourself, and you can literalize it in a floating ice cream truck next to a magical zeppelin. And and it's just like you couldn't do that in a you couldn't do that in like you know a more straightforward drama or something like that. But you get the opportunities to do that in these genre films that I love. It's interesting you mentioned that too because he one of the Sean Williams Scots wants him to let go so he can sacrifice himself and essentially kill himself. But the last line of the movie, you know, he's a pimp. Pimps don't commit suicide. <laughs> Yeah, oh man, a callback. Because when LaRock says that, you're like, okay, whatever, that's weird. And then obviously, it that, that was, it's a pretty out of left field. Like, you're watching, it's like, ooh, that's bad writing. But the more you watch it, you're like, yeah, it's bad writing, but it's kind of funny. Because <laughs> The Rock is an idiot. That, that's the whole part of it, too, that I think, like, he gets to be The Rock. He gets, uh, he looks what. The Rock has never looked better than he did in that tux on the Zeppelin. Like, he looks fantastic. But he's also a complete moron in the movie, too. Like, he's an actual idiot. <laughs> Yeah, I love that. And it's just like, you know, that's a, a role that Rock probably would not play now, where he lets himself just be an absolute moron. And I think he's actually pretty good at it. Like, I think Pain and Gain is my favorite performance ever by him. And he's just so dumb in that movie. And it's so great. Yeah. Honestly, once again, really great for actors to play these roles that they wouldn't play today or, you know, even before then. There's also just a bunch of, I mean, I love, you know, like early 90s SNL, like I pointed out, I mm -hmm. love Mad TV. So seeing Will Sasso appear in anything, I was like, oh, wow, this is fantastic. I haven't seen Will Sasso. I forgot Will <laughs> Sasso existed. It's like Mad TV, best in show, this movie. That's, <laughs> in my mind, the entire filmography of Will Sasso. But even someone like John Larroquette is in this movie, who... The last time I remember hearing John Larroquette, now I didn't watch the Night Court reboot, maybe he's in that, was him being referenced by Kitty on Arrested Development as her sponsor. But he never appeared in the show. And it was just, and I don't think his name was actually said, but that's just who she was alluding to. <laughs> it's funny, because yeah, I always think of the reference that they make to him on Futurama, where it's like, Bender is like digging up graves, and he's like, now no one can't say that I don't have John Larroquette's spine. 
So, but yeah, so like I said, this is just loaded with just great character actors. It's also loaded, and I alluded this er- to this earlier with the killers, but it's also loaded with just great songs. I think this movie's yeah, soundtrack Moby, is phenomenal. Moby did the entire soundtrack. Yeah. And then, you know, that when they're lifting up in that, that bizarre scene I was talking about earlier, and you have the uh, the song, which is like an actual Moby, Moby memory gospel, which is such a cool, like, I'm like, that really drew me into that scene in particular. But yeah, Moby, like you said, um, we've got a couple Moby songs on there. He did the soundtrack. We've got the Pixies. We've got the Killers, obviously. We've got, um, I think, is there some Muse in here? There's all kinds of just like Jane's Addiction, um, Waylon Jennings, like all these great, great art. Like this is a great soundtrack. Am I right? It is. And it's really interesting because the music budget probably wasn't all that big on this movie. Yet people probably signed off on their music at a much better rate than they normally wouldn't a big budget action movie or something like that to be in this movie. All these actors basically did this movie for scale just to be in this movie. So people read the script. They seem to want to work with Richard. Like everyone was just all in on Richard Kelly in 2006, apparently. Yeah, it's like cats. You know, people were like, let's get this huge cast of just big actors who were like, like, cool. Maybe this will get me an Academy Award or something like that. Obviously did not work out. But hey, you know, that means we got something weird and interesting from it. But at least at least those actors were paid $20 million to embarrass <laughs> themselves in cats. These ones are getting like, you know, a thousand bucks a week or something. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely that. These guys are, are working for scale. But yeah, I I, I mean, yeah, you, you mentioned that at the top. This is something you probably would not get to normally talk about. And that's one thing I, I absolutely love doing about this show is that these are movies that are not necessarily going to pop up anywhere. I got to talk about Cloud Atlas. I got to talk about, watch Southland Tales. And this is one that I've, I've always been kind of interested by. It's always been on the outskirts. I've heard so many things about it, like this is a disaster. This is a secret masterpiece, whatever, whatever. And so as soon as you mentioned to me, I was like, let's go, let's do it. Like, what was your initial reasoning? Like, what was, what, what really made you want to just come on here and talk about this bizarre movie? I think it's because I've I've been wanting to talk about this movie for so long, and I've seen it so many times. I revisit it once every two, three years or so, so I've probably seen it seven or eight times at this point. I, I finally just bought it on my TV. It's like I just have it back there. I can tune into certain parts of it, but I just get sucked into it every time because I always forget. Like, the ending does, despite being three hours into the movie or whatever it might be, the ending eventually just sneaks up on you. It's like, oh, we're here. Like, I, I really like this part. The end is really good. So you're kind of just waiting for the end to happen and trying to... Because when there's so many plots and threads and characters going on, and some of them are half-developed or a quarter-developed, whatever it might be, you forget that it doesn't go anywhere, and you got kind of invested in, like, this part or that part. It's like, oh, that's the last time that we saw any of this. Uh, so it keeps you wanting more <laughs> the entire time. Uh, and I, But again, I can always see how people get halfway through this movie and just turn it off or walk out of the theater, whatever it might be. It is most definitely a not-for-everyone movie. Yeah, that's that's fair. And speaking of walkouts, you know, and, and the original, you know, the original cut apparently at Cannes had a bunch of walkouts. But that, have you seen? You mentioned that there is that cut that exists. Have you seen that cut? I have not. No, because okay. you mentioned Janine Garofalo, and I know that she's featured more in that cut. I think she's in maybe three seconds of the theatrical cut. Yeah, because I I know she's in a couple. Because I kept seeing her and being like. Oh, okay. Like she's in this, you know, I, and I'm a really big fan of hers. So whenever she pops up, I'm really excited. So I, I would be really curious to like know 
what these cuts are because I've been really getting interested and invested in the kind of idea of a quote unquote director's cuts. Yeah, and you know, I think that a lot of times they are great, and it's like we get these movies that might not work, but kind of are this this uh, artist's vision is kind of reimagined. But then on the other hand, sometimes it's like there are something where there are these big overindulgent things, and you know, I think I'm not a big fan of the auteur theory, and it just being like, yeah the movie is just this one person's vision because movies, unlike a novel or unlike, you know, a painting or something, they are so collaborative. You have the director, but, and then the director and the writer are the same in this case, but writer, editor, uh, actors, you know, lighting, like, eh, like cinematographer, like so many, so many different people. And with director's cuts, a lot of times you'll be like, okay, we're going to give this one person their vision, uh, which is why I recently covered, spider-man 3 and there's actually an editor's cut of that which i am really interested by and i think is a lot better than if sam raimi had gotten to do his director's cut and i think so it's 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 kind of a double-edged sword i i'm interested by the idea of these longer director's cuts these other alternate visions but i think that they do lend themselves a little bit to being like this guy's a secret genius and i think watching this one you could be like yeah this guy clearly probably thinks of himself as an auteur of this genius of this guy who both written wrote and directed it but there's a there's maybe it's he's not as much of a genius as he thinks of. No, it's like he stayed up all night and realized he had to continue writing or <laughs> continue directing and did a bunch of lines of cocaine and then was going to crash around like 3 p.m. And he smoked a bunch of weed for some reason to calm himself down. And this is sort of the mix that you get. There's this like overly aggressive, high energy stuff and this really weird subtle satire and laid back stuff and the performances don't necessarily match the tone of each scene that we're in. So it's just a lot of different things going into one. So this was the first time that you saw this movie? Yeah, I had never seen it before. This is, I was, I, I was really interested to check it out. I, I had, I knew its reputation, but I, I never had sat down and be like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sit down and watch two and a half hours of this bizarre movie. And I probably should have, in all honesty. So when you start watching it and you see like the first four minutes, which is like home video, handy cam, and then nukes go off. What did you think you were in for? I thought I was in for some kind of like post-apocalyptic thing, like some gritty, like Terminator salvation, like the world has ended. We're all living in the post-apocalypse. But like the nukes never really even matter that much. I felt like it was just like, I was kind of like, what was even the point of that? So it, it caught me off guard for sure. Yeah, they, they were more of a catalyst to get us into this future mm-hmm. that we end up being in and we exist in throughout the course of the movie. But yeah, very few movies world build like this. That's the one mm-hmm. thing I will give this movie a lot of credit for, although it's confusing at times. It does feel like a lived in world where 95 percent of movies just feel phony and fake and not real. Although this movie feels phony and not real. The world itself feels very real and lived in. Yeah. I'm, I'm a huge fan of world building of things that clearly put a lot of thought and effort into this world that it's set. That is a world that is very different from our own. I've talked about that a lot in movies like, you know, John Carter or whatever, where it's just like this bizarre, weird other world. And this these characters are kind of having to live and experience in it. And I think that is one of the drawbacks of the film is that we don't have this fish out of water, this point of view character that can kind of ease us into understanding what is happening because it is just kind of throwing everything all at once at you. And you're just like, whoa, 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 this is, this is a lot. 
Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets, another one that I think draws a lot of parallels with this movie, where it's just like, there's a lot happening, there's a lot of weird world building. But that is something that is always going to really intrigue me, and what really intrigued me about this one. Maybe the absence of a point of view character here to explain everything is, you know, maybe a part of the movie where both the main characters have amnesia. Maybe you're supposed to figure everything out along with them at the same time because they have no idea what's going on. Yeah, I mean, that that could be true. If like the point of this is you're supposed to be very disoriented and kind of not understand and feel like these characters who are lost in the world, who don't really understand anything and are trying to figure everything out. And at the end of the day, nothing makes sense. That that makes sense with the tone of the movie because this tone of the movie is about how much the world is changing and how much things just don't make sense and things don't fit together. And you have these evil tycoons that are just are purporting to save the world and they're actually just ruining everything. And maybe in the end we need to blow it up. And it's like, yeah, I, I you know, are the people who are, actually claiming to be, you know, the the kind of quote-unquote neo-Marxists or whatever, the people who are going to, like, save us from these evils, are they actually just, like, also in uh, working with these people and it's just you're just, like, trying to track everything and you really can't? So if that was the intention, then I guess, you know, well done to uh, to this this screenplay. See, now, now you have come around to the entire space <laughs> that the rest of us fans live in of giving this movie retroactive credit for things it didn't mean to do. <laughs> There you go. That's that's a yeah. That's a real sign of a work of art is just giving. And because yeah, I do that with a lot of movies. I give a lot of movies maybe more credit than they deserve, especially on this show. So that had to be the case with this one. It it, it does another thing that it does presciently mm-hmm. point out is the polarization of both ends of the political spectrum. Like, even during the Bush time, it did feel like most of America and most people, and maybe it's still the case, and because of the amplification of social media, you just hear from these people that are on the fringes, they really get amplified more than anything. But it felt like centrist, slightly right of center, slightly left of center, that was the majority of people. But in this movie, you have your extreme right, and then mm-hmm. you have your neo-Marxist, which would be your extreme left, and they're both just kind of portrayed as the worst people on earth yeah uh, yeah that is that is very true we have seen that's another way that it was kind of prescient in the intervening years the the disappearance of these just kind of moderates you have just everybody uh on the extreme right even like i have a lot of you know these these very hardcore you know old school reagan aunts and uncles and stuff like that you always see at thanksgiving and and they they are kind of like what is ha- even they are like what is going on like these you know the, all the maga people are like just baffle them and i think that you know this this generation of political just complete division just where everything has gone one way or the other is something that this movie did a good job of predicting yeah, I, I I have no idea if he was really ahead of the curve on this or he thought that this is so outrageous, this will never happen, and I'll throw <laughs> it into this dystopian future, but you're living a lot of this future right now. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's, it's yeah, it's a thing where I think that the most, the most dated thing, the least accurate thing is the nukes at the beginning of this movie because it's like, yeah, we didn't need this apocalypse to just start off this insanity. It just kind of happened naturally. 
you just had people like Trump showing up and just making everyone like everyone lose their mind. It's just people showing up. You know, it's a reality TV star becoming the president of the United States. Uh, and, you know, that seems like something that would have been, oh, laughably a farce, you know, 20 years ago. That would have been a joke on The Simpsons or something. But it's the reality that we've all lived through for the past, you know, eight or whatever years. Well, it's essentially, again, the, this movie comes up the same year as Idiocracy. And who's the mm-hmm. president in Idiocracy? It's a professional wrestler. Yes, exactly. And then, yeah, even something like, you know, Kevin Smith is in this. Like, it reminds me of something like Red State or something, you know, like all these, like, it's it seems like a lot of these guys had the kind of same ideas about the way things are going and the way the country was going. Yeah. And I, I do appreciate that it doesn't pull its punches on sort of the crazy left wing style of this as well. Like, where it takes some of the movements that we've seen and pushes them to the extreme. So maybe that's next uh, of what we're going to see, which is not great. Yeah, yeah, no, it's exactly it's 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 not it's uh it's not taking any sides. It's, it's just saying like it's kind of making the point that like yeah, extremism is bad in any direction, and you know having these kind of things where you become more uh, devoted to an ideal, and then actually what you know you originally were fighting for is going to be a bad thing, uh, and it brings that up time after time. Which circles back to the center of the movie, which is Sean William Scott, who has amnesia, has no real affiliation to anything. He's kind of being used as a pawn. But when left to his own devices, both versions of his character are just good people. Like he saves that guy from shooting himself in the head. He doesn't have to do that. He just does it because he feels the need to do it. He's just trying to help. And in the end, he is the one who saves everyone. Yeah, inter- yeah, it's interesting because you th- watch the movie, you you get the the vibe that The Rock is the main character, or maybe Justin Timberlake is because you're hearing his voiceover. Uh, but really, it is Sean William Scott is kind of the point of view character, the character that you do relate to the most, that you are rooting for the most, and you're at the end. His arc is, I think, by far the most satisfying. Oh, for sure. Like it, it's not until the end that you realize that he was the main characters at the <laughs> of this movie. But then when you rewatch it again, you're like, oh, okay, that makes a lot more sense. Like even when he first wakes up and you see that there are two of him and he's standing next to the mirror and it's like the weird, that's actually a really cool part of the movie too. When he's waving in the mirror and everything's on a three second delay in the mirror and he's just like, I don't know what's going on. (laughs) Yeah, that part tripped me out. I was like, whoa, okay. This is it. Like that was what the moment when I was like, all right, this movie's interesting. This movie's saying something. I don't know what it's saying, but I'm, I'm down for it. Yeah, it might be in a foreign language, but I, I get the gist that it's trying to say something. Like even even in the place where he's being held hostage, you talk about all of the different people that are in this movie. When the government comes in to wipe them all out, they just shoot Eli Roth taking a shit. Yeah, <laughs> I forgot about that. But yeah, as as we're kind of, sounds like we're all wrapping up a little bit. Do you have any like stray thought, any last kind of big things to say about this movie or small things? Not really. I feel like I got it all out. All of the pent-up Southland Tales discourse that I've ever wanted to have, I feel like we've gotten out in the last hour. Okay, excellent. Yeah, this is this was a good... It was therapeutic. It was good for you to kind of be like, ah, to just kind of like finally have a, a uh, platform where you could uh, get all this out. I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> The hardest part, the hardest part, is recommending this movie to people because I like. I mean, we're we're gonna do a show on it. If you had hated this movie, it would have made a good show anyway. With me coming in saying that I like this movie. However, if like I'll probably end up doing a movie club about this on my show, and we'll release this episode along with it, and I'll encourage my audience to go watch this movie. And 
I'm nine out of 10 people are going to tell me to go fuck myself after like 10 <laughs> minutes. Like, what is this shit? <laughs> and I think too, the, the big hang up that a lot of people might have is like you said, and it's the same thing that a lot of people have had is this movie is so long. And I think it is a real time commitment. And I think you can kind of give yourself over to something weird. If it's a short one, uh, like the episode I'm going to record later, that's actually going to be out by the time this is out is Fritz the, on Fritz the cat, which is also a just bizarre, weird movie where you're like, what is going on? But that movie is 70 minutes long. So you can kind of just settle in, watch it, be like, that was weird. And then go about your day. But this is like, it is a commitment. You have really got to watch this movie and maybe you maybe break it up, maybe make it a TV show. Like we talked about. But yeah, so I, I'm curious to see, you know, what my what uh, my audience thinks about it, what your audience thinks about it, because this is a movie where you're not just gonna be like, yeah, whatever, it was fine. This is a movie where you're gonna have some strong opinions one way or the other, and that's why I was so excited to kind of really get into it. But yeah, uh, as we wrap up, I I just have a one qu- more question for you, and that is, we talked about vibe movies a lot. Do you have? Any favorite vibe movies, one in particular or just a few that you really love? I, I think the Mulholland Drive is a pure vibes movie. And basically the entire first half of Twin Peaks, The Return is. a. But basically, David Lynch is just a vibes director. Either you vibe <laughs> with him or you don't. And I, I know so many people that hate David Lynch movies, whereas I just kind of you get into his world. That's a great thing about it. Like he creates a world. His world building is so good. And that's why I think that I like this movie so much, that it feels like the world really exists. And so few movies are actually able to accomplish that, that those would be the that Mulholland Drive would be the one that really sticks out to me. I'm trying to think of anything else like as a vibes movie. Clockwork Orange in a weird way. Mm, okay. I can see. Yeah, I mean, Kubrick 12, definitely. Twelve Monkeys is another one. I think I would throw on that list of a vibes movie. Okay, yeah. One one I might add is uh, you said Mulholland Drive. Just Drive. I think it's a really good vibes movie. You know, I hate that movie. <laughs> okay, all right, interesting. I am in a weird minority of people who just the first scene rules, the opening credits rules, and then nothing happens the rest of the movie. They could have replaced Ryan Gosling with a cardboard cutout of Ryan Gosling in that movie. <laughs> I think yeah that that speaks to the point of yeah it's it's one of those movies where it's just like the plots whatever it's just vibes you know and some people that'll really work for some people it won't just like this movie uh another one I would add is like a lot of Miyazaki stuff I think is is very vibes but his most recent one I don't know if you got a chance to see the boy in the heron yet but that is a movie okay that is definitely a movie where you're like what is even happening in this what is going on people are just going through things doing things but in a way that really works for me, just really incredible visuals, just like Miyazaki always does. But he brought on a lot of the other interesting animators on this one. That's another vibes. And it's funny because watching his movies a lot of the time, I'm like, I'm clearly like not getting something culturally because, you know, I'm a white guy who grew up in America. So this is a Japanese movie with very Japanese sensibilities. I'm clearly missing something. But I saw Boy in the Heron in the theater with someone who was born in Japan and who goes back there frequently. And even she was like, yeah, I wasn't getting like half this movie, but we still really appreciated it. So that that's one I think has to be on the vibes uh, Mount Rushmore, possibly with this movie. Yeah, and, and I think that works differently because everyone's vibe is going to be different, like what you personally vibe with. So there's going to be a lot of different answers to this question. But the last few movies that I would throw into that would be the Connery Bonds from Goldfinger through like Diamonds Are Forever. They're just like Goldfinger is great, but then it's like kind of the same movie over and over, and it's 
are you vibing with Sean Connery as Bond or are you just out on this? That's that's a good point. Yeah, the Connery every Bond has really had their own flavor, but yeah, the weird swigging 60s uh Sean Connery Bonds are yeah. are, are and their I own beast. I hate, I hate Roger Moore Bonds. I love Thank Connery you. Bonds. Thank you. I just, cannot stand Bonds. Yeah, exactly. And that's why everyone has their own favorite, you know. Uh, I, I'm on the same boat. I really don't like Roger Moore. I think he's just like old and literally a clown in one of those movies. I, I'm a big Bronzeman guy. Like I love Pierce Bronzeman, but probably that's because I grew up in the '90s. But uh, I do dig up the vibes of those movies, especially the ones that get kind of weird. You know, the later ones, like the last two. You're like, what is happening? There's a guy with diamonds in his face who like changed from a Korean guy to a white guy. Like there's there's a tidal wave that he's surfing. Like. What what is happening here? Like like there's like somebody with like Stockholm. So like there's so much. That's enough. Those 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 last two are like just throwing a lot of weird stuff at you, and they're like, we can do whatever we want. It's a James Bond movie. Yeah, the the last one's Die Another Day, right? Yeah, Die Another Day. Yeah, and then because it's Goldeneye, Tomorrow Never Dies, Die Another Day, and then I forget the the fourth one. Um, people are probably shouting at us right now, but um. <laughs> Tomorrow never dies. Um, which is the, there's one with there's one with Terrence Stamp or Malcolm McDowell as like uh, that, as the Rupert Murdoch one. I like that's, that. One. Yeah, that's Tomorrow Never Dies. That one's really good. I've actually covered that on this show. I think that's a world pretty underrated. Is not enough. Movie. Is that it? Uh, world, yeah, Richards. world. World is not enough. Yeah, yeah. With Denise Richards as like the the fi- like she's like a nuclear physicist and she's just like yeah. Her name is like Christmas and, uh, or something like that. Robert Carlyle is the bad guy because he feels no pain in his brain. Oh yeah, that's the thing. And like the bullets going into his brain, so it doesn't feel any pain. Yeah, that that's a that's an interesting movie. And it kind of like predicted the plot. It's like Quantum of Soul is kind of like ripped off the plot of that movie a little bit. I feel like, but yeah, that's that's when Bond was allowed to just. I love it when Bond movies are just like allowed to be weird. You know, uh, whenever they're like, okay, we're gonna take it back down to a strippy gritty Bond. I'm like, that's a good movie. But when it's like. This is gonna be weird. There's an evil organization that runs everything in the world. I'm like, okay, cool. I appreciate this. Yeah, and the Craig Bonds really both benefited and suffered from that. Mm-hmm. Casino Royale's really good. Obviously, Skyfall is excellent. The other three are too serious and bad. Like, I, the best part of the last Bond movie is sort of the throwback to old Connery Bond movies when he goes to Cuba he meets up with a spy there they do a shootout in like the nightclub they're dancing like it's weird and like it's there's not many parts of the new Bonds that are fun and I've always found that James Bond's supposed to be fun yeah and there's that scene in the last one where they roll out Christoph Waltz on that like Hannibal Lecter slab or whatever and he's like I, I don't know if it's supposed to be funny but I thought it was hysterical. I was dying in the theater. And I was like, I'm enjoying this. Whether or not that was the intent of the director, this scene is really working for me on a comedic level. And so, you know, a lot of that stuff in that last movie was big and weird and goofy. And they're like on the, the secret island fortress. And, th- and that was like nothing makes sense with the timelines. They're like, there's a virus that'll kill you, but it's nanobots. And it's just like cool what and it's like if james bond ever sees the woman he loves again she'll die and it's just so so weird i love it when bond is yeah weird. and like and like mally remick sugar is that his name no remy mouth uh, Re- yeah. okay I, I got the dyslexia on his name going but he's basically like just a knockoff of the javier bardem character from skyfall <laughs> even his location is one so it's like someone watched skyfall and then watched star trek first contact and like use them together for the plot of this movie and 
it just it wasn't great. The second half of that movie sucks. The first half is great. Yeah, honestly, I I, I completely agree. And I, I think it's you know Bond is always really interesting because and this is something I knock it for sometimes yield some uh, weird results is that the Bond movies are so just like whatever's popular they'll just copy you know like like you know the the early greedy Bond movies is because Bourne was really popular so they're like okay cool we're gonna make him like Jason Bourne or like you know I think my favorite example is in the seventies uh, they like one of the movies ended with like James Bond will return and I think it was like said diamonds are forever and then all of a sudden Star Wars is a huge hit so they're like actually just kidding Moonraker he's going to space you know and then eventually they did do a diamonds are forever but they're they're very reactionary movies uh, and sometimes that yields bizarre genre combinations and results well we've got to the point where we're talking about all the bond movies i think (laughs) think we're good i think yeah i think that's a good point to leave it before we go though pat why don't you tell the people uh where they can find you all the all the good stuff that you do yeah at the pme on x where you can always Find me, tweet at me, do whatever. I'm still going to call it Twitter. Calling it X is just weird. <laughs> right. uh, the Mayo Media Network on YouTube for all of the videos that I put out. Also on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever it might be. The Pat Mayo Experience Audio Podcast. I release a show six times a week. Predominantly sports, but not always. Sometimes it's a comedy episode. Sometimes it's an Oscars preview episode. Whatever it might be. Although we'll probably talk about the Oscars about how you bet on the Oscars rather than review movies. So it's a, if we talk about vibes, Derek, it's a completely different vibes type show than this. Well, you know, I do have a lot of fans who are sports fans. You know, I myself am a big sports fan. So, you know, I'm not a sports betting fan. That's more my brother. But, you know, I definitely appreciate that stuff. I think that I have some listeners who there is the cross. So there's some Venn diagram uh, in the middle there. So I think that's good. But yeah, well, just know that we're not actually good at sports betting. It's just a it's just a device for us to talk about the sports. Right, right, right. Well, you know, you need you need a uh, way uh, an, a way to ent- enter, you know, and uh, so yeah, that that's important. Um, but yeah, and then yeah, if anybody out there, if this is your first time listening to the show, we're underrated movie podcast everywhere on Instagram and all the social media platforms. Uh, have YouTube as well, and as well as a Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash underrated movie podcast, where we do a bunch of bonus stuff, including a sports movie show, uh, where we review a sports movie every month. Um, but yeah, you can get a bonus, a uh, bunch of bonus content there if you want to follow us anywhere. Uh, we've always got the questions on Spotify if you want to answer if you do, if you, whether or not you think the movie is underrated or not, and then usually I'll put up another poll there that you can answer. So give us a like, give us a follow, all the places. If you want to give us five stars uh, on whatever app you're listening on, that helps us show out a ton. But yeah, Pat, thank you once again for coming on and bringing this truly bizarre movie to me. Thanks for having me.